Well, as we were looking briefly at Romans chapter 8, at that list of gifts, uh, you might have noticed that the last gift that we referenced in verse 8 was the gift of mercy. And if you don't know me, I do not have the gift of mercy. That is, that's outside of my ballpark. I, I strive to be merciful, but that just doesn't come naturally to me. And I'm thankful that I have a, a wife that I can count on to uh, point out when I say foolish things, which is a lot more often than I would hope. Uh, things like uh, referring to somebody's makeup as raccoon style. That's, that's not a nice thing to say. That's not something that people appreciate. And I know that now because of my wife. She graciously pointed that out to me, and, and I'm learning. I'm growing. Uh, recently in our house, we also learned that another thing you should not do is uh, compare somebody's hairstyle to Cruella de Vil. That's also not a thing that that people appreciate. Even if you have no malice intent in, in doing so, people just don't find those things uh, very encouraging or uplifting. It's not edifying. Uh, that's what I hear anyway. Again, I'm, I'm learning. I'm working on it. Well, um, Paul didn't have a wife, right? We know that from 1 Corinthians 7. So he uh, didn't have that, that sanctifying aspect that, that marriage brings. Perhaps he was married before. There's reason that we have to think that he was, in fact, married before. Uh, but he was able to, to speak his mind without that, that feminine filter. He was able to just speak and declare uh, without really much concern about how it was going to be received. And, of course, we'll look at later on in this passage that he did care about how it was received. And uh, I don't think at all that Paul's... Uh, lack of inhibitions are due to his ignorance of what is socially acceptable, as, as mine are, but rather that his are uh, much more in line with his commitment to speak the truth without uh, reservation, without compromise, that he had no fear of man, that he wasn't, uh, he, he didn't really compare different men in, in different ways. He wasn't a respecter of men, a respecter of persons. And if we look at verse 3, which I just read to you, uh, we do see that he is concerned, not so much for uh, his popularity, for how he's received, for people liking him, but he's concerned for the truth of the gospel. So in verse 3 of chapter 6, it says that he wants to give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. That is Paul's number one priority. That's his number one desire, that the gospel be revered, that people understand and receive and embrace the gospel, and that he not do anything to... Uh, to jeopardize how people are going to receive the truth of the gospel. Back in chapter 5, in verse 12 of chapter 5, uh, it, Paul said that we are not commending ourselves to you. And what he was saying back there is that he, again, he didn't want people to embrace him. He didn't want people to receive him just because of who he was. He wasn't concerned about people liking him. He wanted people to receive and embrace the gospel. And that's why now in verse 4, he is saying, in everything we are commending ourselves as servants of God. So Paul, in fact, was commending himself because he is a servant of God. Not because he is great, not because he's the, the fantastic apostle Paul, not because he wants people to like him or to praise him or he wants some kind of fame or, or glory, but because he wants people to receive the truth of the gospel. And he, after this sentence here in verse 4, he kind of launches into a, a list of reasons why people should embrace him as commendable, why people should 
understand that he is an apostle sent to preach the truth of the gospel, that he has a message to declare, and it's not a message that is his own, that, that puffs him up in any way. He is speaking here of uh, outward difficulties that he has faced, or outward difficulties that he has endured. In fact, the first thing that he mentions in this long list that we started looking at last week and we're going to continue looking at this morning is endurance. He says in, in verse 4, in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance. And we should understand that as kind of a, an all-encompassing way that he summarizes the, the subsequent list that he's going to give us. Well, he goes on in uh, verses 4 and 5 to point out these outward difficulties that he uh, has been faced with. And he starts first with those circumstantial difficulties that are permitted by God. And we can read about those in the latter part of verse 4. He mentions specifically afflictions and hardships and distresses. Again, these are uh, circumstantial difficulties that God has allowed him to find himself in. God has put him in situations where he is going to be uh, faced with afflictions and hardships and difficulties. Well, he, he goes on in the, the following verse, in the first part of verse 5, to graduate to intentional persecutions or physical harms that other people intend to, uh, to impose on Paul. He says, in beatings and imprisonments and in tumults or in riots. And these aren't things that just happen it's not just happenstance. He happens to find himself in a, a situation where he is being imprisoned, where he's being beaten, where he is surrounded by riotous people. These are very intentional persecutions that the Apostle Paul has undergone, again, for uh, the, the sake of enduring the ministry. And then at the, the latter part of verse 5, we see the results of Paul's self-imposed efforts. These are situations that Paul has kind of put himself into throughout his ministry. That is, in labors and sleep, sleeplessness and in hunger. These are um, comforts that the Apostle Paul has foregone so that he can serve the, the people that he's been sent to serve. He has undergone these circumstantial difficulties, these intentional persecutions, and now these self-imposed efforts for the sake of the gospel so that he can endure the ministry so the ministry might not be discredited by others. And then in verses 6 and 7, we see Paul's godly response, his holy living. He mentions uh, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the word of truth, the power of God, and the weapons of righteousness. And we could really sum all these up by saying that Paul was merely walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he actually mentions that uh, specifically in verse 6, that he is living this life of godliness, walking in the Holy Spirit. And so we could kind of summarize this list up until this point by saying that the, the challenges, the, the things that Paul endured in verses 4 and 5, were um, that he, these were things that he endured through. And then verses 6 and 7 described how he endured through them by these works of the Holy Spirit that God had brought him through all these different uh, labors and, and tumults and uh, all of the rest. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, how Paul wraps up this list um, of these things that he's endured and how he continues to defend his ministry, that it might not be discredited, that he might not uh, give cause for offense for somebody to reject the gospel because of who Paul is and, and the way that he is being received or embraced. And back in 
verse 4, this really is kind of the, the main idea that Paul has is he's going to carry out through the, throughout the rest of the uh, several verses to follow, that in everything he wants to commend uh, themselves. So he's speaking on behalf of other apostles uh, as servants of God in much endurance. This is kind of the, again, the, the main thing that he wants to get across, that they are commendable servants who endure for the sake of the ministry. And we'll see in, in verses 8 through 10 that Paul serves God by enduring through paradoxical conflict. So he's going to in, embark on uh, a, a series of paradoxes here. There are going to be nine different couplets that are going to be contrasting the way that he's perceived by the world uh, versus the, the reality that the, the way that he actually serves and what is true in the eyes of God. So he's contrasting thoughts of perception and reality. And he begins that by starting with uh, contrasting glory and dishonor in verse 8. So he says, by glory and dishonor. That is how he is serving the Lord, by enduring through glory and dishonor. Now, believe it or not, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't always received equally by, by everybody, right? He was a very contentious, maybe not contentious, he was controversial. He was a controversial man who was presenting a controversial message. And no surprise that not everybody embraced the Apostle Paul. He was neither universally liked nor universally disliked or, or hated. He didn't have a, a five-star review for the way that he conducted his ministry, for the way that he spoke and the truth that he spoke. But he also wasn't uh, really finding himself out of uh, a venue that he had to, to speak and to proclaim these truths. So some people loved and embraced the Apostle Paul. Some people showed him honor and glory. And yet there were uh, a great group of people who had no problem showing him dishonor at the same time. And in much the same way, uh, the, the gospel that Paul embraced isn't embraced by, by everybody, right? There are people who love the gospel and there are people who actually hate the gospel. The cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing. Not just oh, that, that silly kind of foolishness, but people get uh, hateful toward the gospel of Christ, the exclusive gospel of Christ. People don't like hearing that they're sinners. People don't like hearing that they're going to end up in hell for all of eternity. That is not a popular message. And Jesus himself was a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He said that he didn't come to bring peace. In fact, he came to bring a sword and to divide houses against themselves, a, a father against a son, mother against a, a daughter, that that was what he came for, to divide. He didn't make any, uh, he, he wasn't hiding this fact. In fact, he told his disciples that this was going to be the case for them as well. He said, you know what, they, they hated me. Look at what they're, they're going to do to me. They put me on a cross. They're going to hate you too. Uh, a servant isn't greater than his master. A student isn't greater than his teacher. They took and they crucified your Lord. You can expect the same to happen to you as well. In Matthew chapter 5, he, he goes through and he gives some examples of what that might look like and what the result would be. In Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, not just for any reason, but because of me. Paul definitely knew that, right? People saying false things against him and, and persecuting him. But then he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. 
For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they will persecute you also. And so he's saying this isn't some kind of novel thing. Don't count this as some kind of uh, new phenomenon when you encounter persecution, when you encounter people that don't embrace and accept you. This happened to, to Jesus himself. This happened to the prophets that came before us. Uh, we should consider ourselves warned. And Paul definitely knew that that was his, his lot in life. I don't think he was expecting anything less. And so again, it should be no surprise to us that Paul, a minister of this controversial gospel of the cross of Christ, he was at times praised and at other times he was uh, dishonored, very publicly dishonored. Um, he makes this clear back in chapter 2 when he's talking about how we as Christians, we are an aroma of Christ. He says, to some, we are an aroma of death to death. And for others, we are an aroma of life to life. Uh, we as Christians, we smell different to different people, right? Some people like our message and some people hate our message. And Paul being a public figure, um, this opinion about him, whether it was um, honoring him or, or dishonoring him, it wasn't just relegated to the individual themselves. It didn't just stay secret and, and private, but it was actually shared more broadly. And that's why Paul is able to go on and say that, um, he has endured the ministry by evil report and good report. And so before when he was speaking about glory and dishonor, this was a reference to how people would personally understand and receive the Apostle Paul. But here when it's talking about good report versus evil report, it's speaking of the, the message that goes out about the Apostle and what is said about him. I like how the, the ESV renders it. It says that um, he is... Uh, acquainted with slander and praise. Um, people speaking poorly against him and, and people praising him and speaking highly of him. I had a, a conversation with somebody just this week about how they absolutely would not want to be a, a little league coach. Not something they want to do because they would have to deal with the parents and the parents nagging and complaining, well, why didn't you put my kid in? How come uh, my kid isn't the, the quarterback or isn't getting the time playing this certain position? Not something they wanted to do. And I can understand that. Paul, on the other hand, I don't think he would have any problem benching every single kid on the team and telling the parents, deal with it, right? He, again, he wasn't a respecter of persons. He didn't fear men. Uh, he, he just spoke the truth as he saw it, as it was. Um, and he had, he had to have had thick skin in order to be the man that he was, in order to accept this slander from one group and this praise from another group. He wasn't driven by what people thought about him. He wasn't swayed by public opinion. He was able to uh, speak the truth and let the ships fall where they may. Well, remember that Paul is writing this letter to this group of Corinthians who are struggling with uh, these False apostles. Remember these false apostles who are speaking into their lives, these uh, quote-unquote super apostles who are trying to uh, gain sway and gain influence amongst the Corinthians. And Paul being mindful of the fact that there are these group of, there's this group of people who are speaking against him, who are slandering him, who are saying all these false and evil things against him. Uh, I think he's kind of bringing that to the forefront here a little bit and uh, responding to some of those evil reports, to some of those slanderous things that are being presented about him. Uh, Kent Hughes, a uh, commentator, he says that 
uh, Paul concludes with this mounting song of triumph, looking at these uh, last seven paradoxes. This mounting song of triumph, triumphant endurance, that rides this up, down-up rhythm of paradox. The first half of each of the seven paradoxes read together as a dirge, as deceivers, as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. All rather melancholy, right? But the second half is a dance. Each of the seven paradoxes of endurance ends in triumph. And so we'll see that, this kind of contrast of perhaps how these super apostles or these false apostles are portraying Paul, how these Corinthians are being swayed to perhaps understand him in in this more dark light, as opposed to how he truly is in the eyes of God and how he is hoping the apostles, not the apostles, the, the Corinthians will be able to accept and embrace him. So there's a, a dichotomy here of the, the perception and the reality. And we see uh, in the, the next paradox here that, that Paul speaks of, he says that they are regarded as deceivers and yet true. And so these first three paradoxes that, that Paul mentions uh, by glory and dishonor, evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, uh, these all kind of address how Paul was perceived. They all um, combat this character assassination that Paul is seemingly undergoing, this, um, this smear campaign that he is having to fight up against, against these false apostles. And of course, Paul wanted to be embraced as somebody who spoke truth, somebody who was honest and trustworthy and reliable. But being a a teacher of the gospel, I think he was fully aware that this was part of the gig, that people are going to uh, chastise him. They're going to make fun of him. They're going to write off what he says as being false, as being deceptive. That's just part of the price that we pay as those who proclaim the message of truth. We're not always going to be embraced as those who proclaim truth. This, is, this was true in Paul's day. This is still true in our world today, that uh, people are going to come up against us, they're going to call us liars, they're going to call us deceivers, and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens, even when it happens within our own home, even when we teach our, our very own kids that God has made them in his image, either male or female, one or the other, right? Uh, that's a, a truth that's not popular. People are going to say, you're lying. People are going to say that we're lying when we say, not only has God made them male or female, in fact, God has created all things. Uh, he has made everything. There's no such thing as the, the Big Bang. We didn't just explode into existence. We didn't develop and evolve over millions of years. And in fact, all the, the supernatural things that we read about in the Bible, they actually happened. We don't just write them off in some kind of naturalistic way. We actually embrace the Bible for what it says. These are unpopular truths, unpopular even to the degree that people are going to say, that's a lie. They're trying to deceive you. And perhaps maybe they even need to be silenced. They need to be shut up. Um, That's what people were saying about Paul 2,000 years ago. He was undergoing the same kind of slander, the same kind of persecution, saying what Paul is saying is deceptive. Don't listen to Paul. And Isaiah chapter 5, we read about this. Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. 
That is the world that we live in today. We live in a world that is flipping everything upside down, calling us deceitful even when we speak the truth. But James in the New Testament, he says in James 1 verse 2, that we ought to count it all joy. We ought to consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials of every kind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James was calling us to endure, just as Paul was enduring through uh, these outward uh, struggles that he was going through. He was enduring by the power of the Holy Spirit, and even as people were slandering his character, he was enduring to uh, present the gospel in all of its truth and all of its glory. Paul absolutely wanted to be embraced as a truth teller. This wasn't something he was willing to compromise on. Uh, earlier in the book, at the very beginning of the book, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12, he said that our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and he says, and especially toward you. Paul has gone through everything that he can to make sure that his message is received as being sincere, as being from God, especially toward these Corinthians. That was what he wanted them to see. That's how he wanted them to embrace his message. Here in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at chapter 7, verse 14, where he says that we have spoken all things to you in truth. Everything that Paul has spoken has been truthful. He absolutely wants people to embrace his message as being honest. Well, Paul goes on and he presents this next paradox of him being a, a servant of God, enduring through the ministry. And he says that he is as unknown and yet as well-known. The idea here is that he is unknown amongst men, and yet he is well-known to God. Paul, who clearly had the, the education, he clearly had the, the intellect and the pedigree to succeed in uh, a variety of areas of life, in business or politics or, again, a number of different ventures that he could have taken, uh, he didn't chase any of the, the fame or the glory that the super apostles seemed to, to want to collect for themselves. They wanted people to uh, put them up on a pedestal and to acknowledge how wise and how worthy they are. That wasn't Paul's gig at all. That wasn't what Paul wanted. That wasn't what he strived for. Uh, fame and recognition didn't motivate him at all. That didn't light his flame. Uh, he was there for the glory of God as unknown uh, realizing that, that fame and riches, they're, they're fleeting. That uh, just as it says in Ecclesiastes 9, the dead are, are forgotten. That's not what Paul was after. He was after the glory of God. He says, as dying, and yet behold, we live. Paul was always on the verge of death, right? Uh, seemingly at every corner, somebody wanted to kill him. Somebody wanted to, to get rid of him. Uh, he was as dying, and yet, behold, we live. In 2 Corinthians 4, just a couple chapters ago, he said that uh, he was always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that he was constantly being delivered over to death for the sake of Jesus. Uh, constantly, people wanting to kill the man for the message that he preached. And this paradox is closely tied to the next, as punished and yet not put to death. Uh, here in a few chapters, we're going to be looking at chapter 11, where Paul goes through this lengthy list of everything that he has endured. Uh, he's, again, commending himself as an apostle, why they should listen to him, all these things that he underwent for the sake of the gospel. And we have to realize that this list that he went through wasn't exclusive. 
uh, that in fact, this was a, a rather short list. We know that it was an incomplete list and that it was written rather early in his ministry. Remember this letter was only written 55, 56 AD. There was all kinds of stuff that Paul went through after this lengthy list that we read in first or second Corinthians 11 about how, uh, how much he endured, how much he was punished by the, the people that hated him, that wanted to kill him at every turn. Uh, one glaring example of this was back in Acts chapter 14. You might remember that the, the Jews, they came and they followed Paul from Antioch and from Iconium, and uh, they actually stoned Paul. They not only wanted to put him to death, but they took action on it, and they stoned him, dragged him out of the city, and they thought that he was dead. But Paul got up, and he entered right back into the city. He didn't even uh, take a, a chance to breathe, really, and uh, he didn't get up and, and run away to a different city. They dragged him out of the city, stoned him, thought he was dead, and lo and behold, there he is preaching again in the city square the next day. This was Paul being punished and yet not put to death. He goes on to describe his ministry, this endurance, as sorrowful and yet rejoicing. I don't think we can even really grasp the, the great sorrow that Paul had in his heart, the great love that he had for these, these people, for these churches, and the sorrow that accompanied that. In, in Romans, Romans 9, 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Can you imagine that? Unceasing grief is how he describes the sorrow that he has. Um, again, looking to, to chapter 11, after he's done talking about these beatings and imprisonments and uh, the 39 lashes that he received from the Jews and being stoned and shipwrecked and all these uh, physical things that he suffered and endured through, he says in chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, uh, that apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. His heart was burdened. His heart was laid de weighed down. He says, who is weak without being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? I think that's what really uh, weighed down Paul's heart, this intense concern, this burden that he had for the churches that kept him up at night. Uh, again, going back to the end of verse 5, the uh, sleeplessness and hunger and labors. I think those were the things that really got to Paul. Not the people wanting to kill him and wanting to imprison him. He could put up with that. But it's his heart, this burden that he had for these people that uh, were seemingly writing off Paul whenever he would reach out to them and, and write to them. I think that was really what made Paul sorrowful. At the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 8, he's, again, bearing his heart to these people. He says that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of death. That's pretty low to say we, we despaired of, of death or uh, we despaired even of life, that he, he desired death, it seems like, that he, he was kind of done with it. He was at that low point of his life. He had hit rock bottom. Well, that's to, to speak of the sorrow that Paul had. He says, yes, we, we were sorrowful, and yet we rejoice. Paul knew what it was to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, he says, he starts off by saying that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he says that we exalt or we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, he says, we also exalt in our tribulations. And he kind of continues through this all the way down to verse 11. He's still speaking about exalting. It says in verse 11 of Romans 5, 
He says, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So there is definitely no lack of exaltation, no lack of, of praise and thanksgiving from the lips of Paul, not from the heart of Paul. He was a man who was sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. He goes on to say that he was as poor and yet making many rich. We often look at these things as being mutually exclusive, poor and rich, and yet Jesus himself, when he was writing to the church at Smyrna, he spoke of them as being poor and yet rich. And when he wrote to Laodicea, he spoke of them as being rich and yet poor. Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he says that he knows how to live in, in all situations. He knows what it is to, uh, to abound and to have much. He knows what it is to be a base and to have, have nothing. He knows what it is to live in, in either situation. He was familiar with being poor. And yet, he was storing up treasures in heaven. He was focused on eternal things. He was focused on others. He was more concerned with others than he was with himself, uh, caring about them and considering others as more important than himself. Look at this example that we see in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. He says, you remember our labor and our toil. Those are painful words, right? Not words that give us a happy feeling inside, laboring and, and toiling. Brothers and sisters, we worked night and day. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he labor and toil and work night and day? So that we might not burden any of you while we were proclaiming to you the gospel of God. So not only was Paul taking time out to go and to proclaim the gospel, not just to the church at Thessalonica, but certainly to the church at Corinth, whom he had spent 18 months with, he was laboring with them to present the gospel and all the while, he was working night and day. He was laboring, toiling, so that he wouldn't be an additional burden to them. And then the, the last of the paradoxes that we see uh, is closely related to the former one. He says, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul, again, knew what it was to have nothing, and yet he didn't consider that nothing. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing view, value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish, but dung, so that I may gain Christ. And Paul says, everything else in the world you give it to me and it's all, it's all garbage. I want Christ. I know what it is to, to have nothing and yet to possess all things. Once again, he had an eternal perspective. He had his mind set on, on things above, where moth doesn't destroy, where rust doesn't destroy, thieves don't break in the steel. Paul had an eternal mindset. And after going through all these different things, these uh, nine different paradoxes that we see, it's kind of ironic that the same evidence that Paul points to to say, no, look, I endured. I was an apostle. I was a faithful servant for you. These would be likely the very same things that the super apostles would point to and say, well, look, look at all this stuff. Look at all these bad things that Paul is going through. There's no way that he can be a true apostle. There's no way that he can actually be sent from God. And yet Paul just takes and, and flips the script on him and says, no, this is, this is all for God's glory. This is all evidence of the fact that he was, in fact, a, a true apostle. The super apostles, they longed for this kind of outward glory, for this influence, for this good report, and they did so by deceptive means. 
And Paul says, no, I wasn't deceptive. I was truthful. They did so by bragging about how much money they got and how much money uh, they would uh, receive from those that they were preaching to. And Paul says, no, I'm, I'm poor from earthly perspective, but I'm rich in Christ. Uh, they wanted to say, well, we are, we're well known. Remember they had these letters of recommendation? They said, look, it, we have these other churches that have sent us, and they say that, that we're good teachers, and these people have paid us. And Paul says, no, you are my letter of recommendation. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to care about you. He understood the, the teaching of Jesus, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that he who is least shall be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, we have a, a couple important verses to get to, uh, verses 11 through 13. Let's read those together real briefly. Paul goes on, he says, after pointing out those nine paradoxes, that our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restraining your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. These are beautiful verses of Paul just appealing again to this relationship that he had with this church, this church that he loved, this church that he was with for 18 months. He had written three letters to him already. He has a, a close connection with these people, and he's just being straight up and honest and, and trustworthy with them, saying, uh, our heart is open wide to you. Our mouth has spoken freely to you. He is being transparent. He's being vulnerable, uh, bearing his soul to these people. He's, he's putting it all out there and letting them know that his heart is open. This is an appeal to love on behalf of the Corinthians. Paul truly had a, a Christ-like love for this church. Again, this church, if, if you can think back to our study through 1 Corinthians, we've seen it here in 2 Corinthians, this is a jacked up church, right? It's not the kind of church that you're proud to say, oh yeah, that's a church that I go to. This is a church full of sin and divisiveness and struggle and strife. And yet Paul has a, an absolute divine-like love for them. Uh, just think about for a minute what that means to have a, a Christ-like love. How would you define a, a love that is Christ-like? It's a love that is selfless, that's not demanding, that is unconditional, that's not transactional, it's an undeserved love. And that's the kind of love that Paul had for this jacked-up church at Corinth. He loved them even though they weren't deserving of his love. I know that we've often pondered how it is that Paul could have and show and share such affection for such a broken church. Uh, it is because of this divine-like love. In Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, it says that God chose Israel because he loved them. Uh, not because they were the greatest. In fact, they were the least. Not because they were the biggest. They were the smallest. And yet God chose to love them. Seems like a similar thing going on here with Paul and this church at Corinth. They don't deserve his love but he has a Christ-like love toward them. And this verse, verse 11, which is near the center of this book, uh, is absolutely near the center of Paul's message that he wants to convey throughout this letter to the Corinthians. That our mouth has spoken freely to you. Believe us, trust us, right? Don't listen to the super apostles, believe us. Oh, Corinthians, you hear the, the heartache, the uh, compassion there. Our heart is wide open. It's open wide to you. This is, uh, again, central to the message that Paul is wanting to convey to this church that he loves so dearly. Well, in verse 12, 
he goes on to say that you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Um, in the, the NIV, it says that we are not withholding our affection from you. And the NLT says that we have no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. And so while here, Paul doesn't mention the super apostles by name, I think that he's kind of alluding to them and the fact that they're not going to have the same kind of selfless love for these Corinthians as Paul has. Uh, similar to the political campaigns that we're going to start seeing here soon where people don't actually call out their opponent by name. I think that's kind of what Paul's doing here, that our love is much greater for you than the love of these false apostles, these wolves in sheep's clothing that are trying to uh, deceive you. And Paul uh, has this love for them that is without reservation, that is unconditional. Paul was absolutely all in. His heart was wide open for these believers that he loved. Um, Let's see, I have a quote here, and I forgot who this quote was from, but I'm sure that it will tell me up on the screen. Um, oh, Robert Grimacki. All right, Robert Grimacki said that he manifested the heart and the speech of a loving father. He now wanted them to show the heart and the speech of loving children. His heart was enlarged, but theirs was restricted. Paul had a great love for them. He wanted them to reciprocate that love, to show that love, and to, to share it with him. Uh, there's been a, a recent resurgence of the phrase unrequited love in uh, recent songs and, and pop culture. Uh, talk about one-sided love. I think Paul is really struggling with that, that he loves these Corinthians and they didn't really reciprocate that same kind of love back to him. And he speaks to them here in uh, verse 13. He says, I speak as to children. Uh, he was being real upfront with them. He was almost uh, being disciplinary in the way that he is approaching this conversation, saying, I love you. You guys need to reciprocate. You need to show that love back to me. In Proverbs 13.24, the, the author there says that he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the words of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And Paul wasn't afraid to, to point out to them their need to reciprocate. He wasn't afraid to call them out. In Proverbs 19, it is talking about accepting criticism. It says in verse 20, Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. And he goes on a few verses later in verse 25, and he says, Reprove one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge. Paul is here speaking to these people that he loves, this church that he loves, as children. He is speaking to them with uh, a, a grain of uh, discipline in his voice, saying, you guys need to shape up. You guys need to act like the Christians that you are. And we should certainly count ourselves blessed to have those kind of people in our lives who are willing to correct us, who are willing to speak the truth to us in love, who are willing to cut it to us straight. However, we have to realize that our receptiveness also plays a a large part into that feedback and the, uh, the opportunities that we're going to have to hear people speaking to our life in an honest, open way. And hopefully we've given the, the green light to at least our, our spouse, I would hope, to kind of speak this truth into our lives. But we would do well to, to broaden the circle of people that we're willing to speak this kind of truth, even oftentimes hurtful truth into our lives. We would do well to even invite that uh, criticism, to ask for honest critique, for positive uh, feedback from 
those who are close to us. I know that we live in a, a very private, kind of closed-off society where uh, I'm going to do my own thing, you do your own thing. But we as Christians, we were called to be set apart. We were called to be different and unique. We were called to be soft and teachable and humble, just as Paul is calling these Corinthians to be soft and teachable and humble and to reciprocate this love that he has shown to them. We should do the same as uh, we seek to, to honor Christ. We seek to reflect his love. Paul was no doubt commendable in both his service and in his love. Uh, that's why he's able to say, imitate me, just like I imitate Christ, because he was Christ-like in that service, in that love. He wasn't a hireling. Paul didn't have any ulterior motives. Uh, he demonstrated his love for the church. This Christ-like love he demonstrated for this church. He genuinely cared about them. He opened up his heart to them and shared with them his love for them. He even loved them so much as to call them to do the same, to reciprocate that kind of love for him. What an example that, that Paul is uh, to us. And we ought to pray that we can have that same kind of Christ-like service and love in our own hearts and in our own church. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for, for Paul, for his great love for the Corinthians. God, we thank you for your love for us. I pray that you would give me a, a love for this church, for this body, for Orchard Hills, like Paul had for the Corinthians. I pray that you would help us to be set apart for you, that we would be different and unique, and that we would stand out and be separated unto the Lord, that we would be those who are uh, we're not the same. We are a, a different group of people. We are unique for you. Jesus, we pray that you would be our head that you would lead us and guide us as we seek to honor you in all that we think, say, and do. Amen.